In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, His Eminence, Timothy Cardinal Dolan, Archbishop of New York, joins Rabbi Peter J. Rubenstein for a wide-ranging conversation on aspects of faith and morality. The conversation was recorded on January 30th, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Your Eminence, I think we have to uh, kind of clarify <clears throat> something. Uh, Tom Kaplan, a great friend, introduced us as funny. Um, but we should admit to them that we're the only two that think we are. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think Carrie thinks you're funny. You're Carrie, right. <laughs> right, she, she has to. Um, so I want to thank Tom for the introduction. Tom has been so important and influential in making these kinds of events happen. Uh, but I also, as you heard, want to uh, acknowledge the endowment uh, established by Francine and Ab Simon uh, with support from their son Jamil, who is here this evening with a fair number of congregants from the Village Temple. I met their president, and so we caught up on temple politics. Um, I just want to add a word of testimony to Francine and Ab, who I know quite well. They were members of uh, Central Synagogue, and they were among the two uh, finest and uh, wonderful people I know. One of the last chapter in Ab's memoir is entitled Giving Back, which was such an important part of their lives, and in, in, in fact, this evening is part of that legacy that uh -huh. they're leaving. Um, and therefore, it's especially poignant for me to have his eminence, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, here this evening. As you heard, since he was named uh, the Archbishop of New York just short, a few weeks short of nine years ago, Cardinal Dolan has become an acclaimed religious leader in the city, and I would think of the Catholic Church worldwide. But in his own extraordinary, inimitable way, he has become a friend of so many of us who are clergy in New York, and what you would find if you were alone with him, he is one of the most affable and principled people I know, and we're very grateful, wow. Cardinal, to Keep have you. Keep talking. I like that. I, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbis usually don't need encouragement to keep talking, I understand. But. Just be careful when I take my watch off. <laughs> so, uh, um, the fact is, uh, your Eminence, that since you and I last had our conversation on Which on I fondly day, remember. When was that? It was in 2015, Alrighty. so it was just about three sure. years ago. Uh, much has changed in this world and certainly in this nation, and I think it would be worthy of us uh, to think about that. Mm -hmm. Just so let's begin with a question as to what in your mind are the most important matters that we're facing both as a nation especially when you think of public policy and the intersection with matters of faith and the religious community. Sure. Well, it wouldn't surprise you, Rabbi, nor any of you people who are graciously listening this evening. And by, way, by the way, thank you. Thank you for your extraordinarily gracious invitation and your warm welcome. I, I uh, gratefully remember being here before, and I have immense regard for for this uh, noble institution, so it's good to be back. I feel at home. It would not surprise you to hear me say, and I think the rabbi would back me up, that uh, one of the challenges, I think now, as a nation that we have, is indeed the role of faith, okay? Uh, America has got that extraordinarily uh, delicate balance between a real strong dependence on faith in God, but yet uh, a deep, uh, devotion to the principle of religious freedom. 
and a real conviction that while faith has a role in the public square, it should not dominate and it should always uh, respect the constitutional division uh, between church and state. Uh, that chemistry, that ballet, I think today is under threat from both sides. There would be some extremists who would believe that faith should be normative, should be enforced on everybody. I'm afraid we see that more internationally in uh, radicals, extremists, okay, who really believe that, uh, that in, in the establishment of theocracies and in the uh, a political enforcement of a particular religious creed. We also, though, see it from the other side in that there are many who would feel that the public square should be bleached of any type of involvement with faith, ethical conviction, or religiously driven principles. Both of those extremes would be inimical uh, to the American proposition. Uh, we do not want a naked, what's sometimes called a naked public square, a square that is devoid of, uh, of uh, the, the conviction and the immersion and the participation of religiously driven uh, people, nor do we ever want uh, a particular creed or religion to dominate, uh, especially with the force of law. Uh, that I would feel, Rabbi, that trying to get that, that dance right and trying to maintain the supreme importance of faith in the public square is, is, is very uh, important for us now. I, I'm afraid we face uh, challenges today of perhaps an excessive pragmatism. Uh, I'm afraid that we might uh, be facing today uh, a radical individualism. Uh, all of which uh, can be tempered by religiously driven people. So there would be one. And that's, that's not new to the American proposition. Something tells me it's a rather sharp challenge that we face today. Secondly, I do worry about um, an exaggerated sense uh, of nationalism, and an exaggerated sense of, of self-advancement in our nation and in our country. Uh, patriotism, of course, is a virtue for, for Jews and Catholics, and a love for one's country is something of which we're very proud. But um, I worry when, when you have a political environment that might stress those in an exaggerated sense, I'm worried sometimes that that can take its toll I would be particularly sensitive, and I know this would gel with a Jewish ethos, uh, of, a, of a solicitude and care for the poor and those who are left behind, especially the fragile, uh, the poor, the marginalized. Um, we can't forget those, and they cannot be left behind uh, in a desire perhaps to advance the legitimate interests of this country. America is at her greatest when she's always conscious of those who are hurting, uh, there would be an area where, where faith has something to say about our public policy. I don't know if I'm making sense or not, Rabbi, but those are some of the, those are some of the trepidations that I, that I would have. No, and, and you're, you're absolutely making sense, and in fact, give rise to uh, reason for me to go off script in terms of the questions that I have, but I'll make sure we get back to them. We'll just talk faster. Okay. Um, but, um, so 
this, you're right. I mean, I, I agree that there is a place for faith in terms of the public square and that you, none of us can abandon it. But you have a sense that more, that there's a line beyond which partisan use of faith should not cross because we're, we're watching some of that happen, yes. the, the partisanship of faith, right? The, in other words, certain officials, certain churches also uh, having the ear of, of yes. particular people. Yes, that, that wouldn't be new either, but I'm afraid it is heightened a bit today. We, we Catholics are, are rather scrupulous. I think Catholics and Jews are, are united in that, in that because we are minorities, and because we are, we have often been looked upon classically as outsiders, we're particularly sensitive about that and would shy away uh, very often from any type of overt partisanship. We Catholics, uh, we, we bishops get criticized by both sides, okay? Which I don't think is bad at all. Sometimes I'm grateful for that. Uh, so I would, in my mail, or and even with my, my dealings with uh, political leaders, uh, I would get criticized for, for perhaps favoring one side over the other. But we're kind of, um, we're kind of equal opportunity um, taunters in that, in that both sides seem to take shots at us. We, for instance, Rabbi, I would never, uh, I admire, for instance, the traditional black churches mm -hmm. that have a very robust approach to the partisan politics or not they it, it would not be rare for an historic black church in this community to have one of the presidential candidates speak from their pulpit that could never happen in the catholic church did you ever give thought to why that's allowed to happen by the way i would add it's not only in the black churches it's in actually uh the very orthodox, especially the Hasidic Jewish community. Is that true? I didn't know Absolutely. That. And, and one could imagine why that's allowed to happen, even though you and I might see it as a kind of an abridgment of yeah, the separation. Yeah, and I have thing. to say, sometimes I would bristle in that if the slightest statement that I might make, which could be interpreted as a criticism, let's hypothetically say we're in an election year, I'm thinking, my Lord, if I even speak on principles, not partisanship, not a, a candidate, even if I articulate principles here, I'm blasted for interfering in politics and crossing the bounds of the wall between church and state, while I'm looking sometimes by the same paper that would have on the front page one of the candidates speaking at one of the black churches or one of the orthodox churches. I didn't know that that happened there. And sometimes I would bristle over it. How that's happened, Rabbi, I don't know. I'm a student of American religious history, and I've often thought long and hard of that. One of the, I, I think one of the reasons for us as Catholics is that especially uh, when immigration started heavily, as you would know from your history back in the 1840s, Catholics were thought to be outsiders. They were considered unable to assimilate in American society. They were considered, their citizenship and loyalty was questioned because they were always thought to be, by some, subjects of a foreign potentate, namely the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. We were very sensitive about that. So we kind of were scrupulous about never showing partisanship. Some of that is similar, I would think, 
to the Jewish experience as well. Yeah, I think there is, but I think there is a, uh, and, and then we'll move on, but my sense is that the reason, especially I as a liberal rabbi couldn't do it, uh, but others can, is I cannot deliver block votes, mm -hmm. right? When you think about where candidates do go and kind of cross the line, it is because those communities, their leader can de deliver That's right. tens of thousands of votes. Um, and um, so that may, I, I'm being a little bit cynical here, but I'm not sure I'm wrong. So And so you're saying the candidates wouldn't court you as much. Wouldn't, because wouldn't court. Now, what, what and, that, and my board would not allow it to happen. And would not you and I bristle as well, though, yes. in that the caricature is both of us can deliver block votes. Right. We know different. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, especially today, when, and I know this is a probably more... A problem for both of us is the evangelical churches have so entered the realm of politics and, and have the ear of people high in public office uh, so that it is that, that crossing that line, of course, becomes problematic in terms of policy. Yep. You and I both know, because we come from a longer tradition, much longer tradition than the evangelicals, we know that in the long run, you're only going to get burned if you'd hitch your wagon to any one group or any one candidate. As the Jewish Psalm says, put not your trust in princes, right? Because if you do, sooner or later, you're, you're going to get burned. The other thing is, you, I think you and I also have somewhat of a pretty a strong sensitivity to a congregational polity. In other words, our people mean a lot to us. We don't want to lose them. And one of the ways we can lose them is if they sense we're too partisan. If we go to overtly political, we're, we risk losing our people. And darn it, you and I don't want to do that. And not, I'm just not talking about business here, that you don't want to lose your clients. I'm talking about because you and I love them, and we want to serve them, and we don't, want to, we don't want to drive them away. I think that's another reason. Yeah, and you and I both know where the toggle switches are, so we don't want to throw those. Yeah. Um, so let me uh, ask you, what right now, and from your perspective, are the greatest challenges that the church is facing, both worldwide and then locally? Sure. Here would be one, and I liked Tom's introduction in, when I was listening to it, eager to see what he was going to say about me. The, um, I liked the way he ex uh, spoke about that uh, the rabbi and I both have a challenge of making the timeless timely. That's apparently one of the missions here at the 92nd Street. Why? To make the timeless timely. We both come from a tradition that we, we were proud and grateful of the fact that it's timeless. We speak about values and principles. We speak about beliefs that have been around for millennia and, and will be because they don't come from us. They come from the Lord. Uh, but that is a great challenge. And that, of course, has been with the church from the beginning. How, how do we, and again, we're, we're at home here, how do we take the timeless principles that have been revealed to us in God's word, how do I take the timeless principles that have been safeguarded and handed down by the church for 2,000 years, and how do I make them timely without watering them down, without diluting? That's a perennial challenge for a preacher. That's a perennial challenge for a pastor. That's a, a perennial challenge for us as Catholic. So there's one of the, what you might call cerebral up there challenges that we face today. We face some practical challenges that you'd probably be uh, more interested in and which, which wouldn't surprise you. Let me mention a couple of them, okay? 
we have a shift in Catholic population worldwide from the first world to the third, okay? It's massive, it's massive, all right? We have a shift domestically here in the United States that I face every day in that the stronghold of Catholic presence, Catholic demographics is no longer in the upper Northeast section of the United States. If you, if you look at a map and say went from Milwaukee, Chicago, down over to Baltimore and then up to Boston, if you took that quadrant, that was the stronghold of Catholic life. That's no longer true, all right? The Catholic Church is growing worldwide, as I said, in the third world, and domestically in the South, the Southwest, and the Southeast. My brother bishops can't open parishes, schools, health and charitable initiatives fast enough. I can't close them fast enough, all right? Because the demographics are changing. So we have to go through some painful challenges. You followed, for instance, the, the mergers that I was faced with. We had, when I arrived here, we had 400 parishes, everybody. 400 parishes in the Archdiocese of New York. Simply put, we didn't need them. Let me give you a little statistic. So 32% of our churches, our parishes, were on this island of Manhattan, while only 18% of the Catholic population of the Archdiocese was. Something had to be done with that. You know yourself, you walk up and down the streets of New York, you see parishes a block or two apart. So I had to cut the parishes from 400 to 300. You don't think that was a challenge? You don't think there were hurt feelings? You don't think there were a lot of bruises there? There were, still are. Although, thank God, it went remarkably well. I think because we did a, a huge amount of consultation and, and collaboration with our people. We just have had to, to merge some of our schools. We simply couldn't keep them all going. That's a, that's a very practical challenge that I have in trying to, the, the church doesn't exist for the institution. The institution, the public face of the, of the church exists for the church, not vice versa. I'm not in business uh, to put new boilers into buildings that are now mostly empty on Sundays, okay? The church is not a museum. The church keeps up with where its people are. I got too many churches here, I need them up in the northern counties where they're meeting for Sunday mass because they don't have enough room in public school auditoriums, okay? That's a challenge, uh, that's a challenge that I would have. And finally, everybody, and once again, if the Pew Research rabbi is accurate, and we both know that it is, we also face a problem, and there's more, but I'll, let me just, the rabbi was kind enough to ask me to mention a couple of them. The, the, the third challenge I would bring to your attention, we both face, is a whole, new, a whole new attitude about religion among our people, especially our young people. Gone are the days where you can presume that someone born a, into a Catholic family and baptized a Catholic, all right, two or three months after birth, will remain committed to the church. You used to be able to presume that. They may not be the most fervent Catholic, but if they were born into a Catholic family, if they were baptized as a child, odds are that for over 95% of them, they would have identified themselves as a Catholic on their deathbed, even if they had been less than fervent in the practice of the faith. That ain't true no more, all right? 
we represent something that the sociologists call inherited religion. All right? We are, Catholics and Jews are born into their faith. Okay? And we usually don't leave. And by the way, that's still true, even though the Pew Research Center gives us some sobering statistics that would lead us to believe that that presumption is rapidly declining. It still is true for most of us. That's a deep pastoral problem, isn't it? How do we, I can, uh, and, and you, not that I ever would, but you can't lay a guilt trip on people anymore to say you should know better. You should not be going to that evangelical church. You are a Catholic, all right? You can drift from the faith, but you're always at home here. As Jimmy Breslin used to say, we Catholics will drift from the church for a while, but we're only one chest pain away from going back, all right? Now, <laughs> that's not true anymore, all right? That's not true anymore. And if I read the stats right, you have the same challenge here. So that is a big, big challenge. Pope St. John Paul II, who was a, a great friend of the Jewish community, He's the one that suggested that our pastoral strategy ha today has to be what he called the new evangelization. Uh, I know the Jewish people some get chills when they hear that word evangelization. He didn't mean it that way, right? He meant no longer can we presume that culture and ethnic identity is a reliable transmitter of the faith. It still is very often, and boy, it's ideal when that happens. I think I'm preaching to the choir here. I can't go anywhere, Rabbi, where I don't meet Catholic parents or grandparents who with tears in their eyes will say, would you say a prayer for my kids? They don't practice anymore. They well, the, come the, around. the difference is that Jews can lay a guilt trip on their kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, could, could we... Could we have a night on that? I'd like to, I'd like to learn some of when, those. When we're out to dinner. And yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I, I actually want to follow up on that because I didn't ask about this yesterday, but there was a speaker that I heard last night who said for the first time, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, -E right, those who don't believe in God, don't want to be part of an institution, that percentage in America just out, out, um, outnumbered the Catholic Church for the first time. Yes. So, you know, we talk about this Pew Research Center. I think it's, it's in Pennsylvania. It's in Every two years we hold our breath because they do a massive study <laughs> of religious uh, sentiments among the uh, American people and there's usually sobering news for us. For us as Catholics, or for any, for really for any creed, any, especially the so-called settled or inherited religions, uh, the nuns are a problem. Uh, you would, so more and more people are saying, I don't belong to any church. Uh, now, we can wring hands about that, we can have an extra drink about that, or we can dig in and do something about it. Uh, and we're doing it. I just, on my radio program today, Peter had a, a great pastor in Baltimore, Michael White, who has just reignited his parish, and he's bringing them back in droves. We gotta start doing that, because we can't take it for granted anymore, okay? As, as our, it's a bromide, it's a cliche, folks, but as we say, we can no longer just be in maintenance, taking care of what we got, we got to be in mission, okay? Um, but boy, you got the same challenge. And we, we do, and, and um, so the, of course that leads to the question, what is the future of our legacy institutions, whether it be the synagogue or the churches as, you know, the ones that we grew up with. We know within the Jewish world there is a diminution of it and, and mergers in the same way that in the Catholic mm -hmm. Church. 
Is there a role for those institutions in the future as you see it? Or uh, yeah, how, how do they have so. to change? You well, talk well where they'd have to change, Rabbi, is this, and I don't, I, I don't know if you would be in concert with this or not. Um, there's another sociological factor that's affecting both of us, right? We, uh, we both sort of usually bank on the presumption that, yeah, you kind of expect a little drifting from the faith of one's upbringing between the, de the time when somebody is in college. But once they get married and once they have their own children, they're back. That's not happening anymore. For one, look at the delta that we have between the age of graduating from college and when you get married. It's at least eight years, if not longer, if they're even getting married anymore, okay? So no longer can we presume on that, that safety valve that we used to have to say, ah, once they get married and settle down, we'll get them back. By the way, that does happen, but it's just that they're not getting married soon enough and are they're not getting married at all. Secondly, I think what's affected us, and this will get to the root of your, of your uh, question, a lot of the Jewish and Catholic um, uh, ethos is built around steady neighborhoods, is it not? Well, we grew up in those. Yes. We, we would grow up, and I think it's true for you all, you would, you would identify a particular neighborhood where you came from where your faith was somewhat sustained. You had, you had friends, you had socials. In the Catholic culture, you would identify the if they'd say, where are you from? You would say your parish, all right? That's where you grew up. And that wasn't just important to you on Sunday mornings. That's where your basketball team was from. That's where your folks went for dances. Uh, that's where you went if you were in trouble, if you needed rent money. You identify with the parish. That's not true anymore, okay? As a matter of fact, in Catholic polity, whether you liked it or not, wherever you lived, you were in that parish. You didn't choose your parish, you were in it. Boy, those days are over too. But a lot, boy, a lot of our strategy is built on those. So to get to the rabbi's question, how do we preserve those excellent institutions like our synagogues, like our parishes, when you don't have, when you don't have the sociological buttressing for that? So what do you get? I think you get into kind of a, a marketing strategy because you know people are choosing now, aren't they? They will choose, may have been true for you all from, from the beginning, I don't know. For us, now our people will choose which parish they want to go to if they go at all, okay? Uh, so in a way that ain't bad because that puts a, a demand for creativity and innovation the rabbi and I were just talking about an innovative spirit. That, that puts, boy, that puts that challenge on us, see? We can never relax and take it for granted. Oh, they grew up here, they're gonna keep coming. Um, so that's not bad. On the other hand, it's, it, it does have a downside, because um, you, you don't want people just choosing because of taste. Our, we have the problem of people choosing which mass they will go to on a Sunday, depending on what priest has it. Okay, so there's sort of a cult of personality sometimes. 
And you wonder, some of that's understandable. You wonder if that's the best. You would like to think that one's allegiance to his or her faith and his or her synagogue or parish where that faith was sustained would rise above personalities. Not true anymore. It's interesting, Rabbi, so what we do in our studies is we do find, because you had asked about the institutions that we have found to be very helpful and, and really part of our whole, our, our whole chemistry. There's two, of course, in the Catholic mind that are extraordinarily respected. And one would be the network of charities. And the second would be our Catholic schools. Those would be two entities that still sustain what might be left of a Catholic culture and might be, to use a gospel term, a light to the world, especially when it would come to our charities. They say uh, that um, the three things that Catholics out there most appreciate in the church, the three things, and it'd be in different orders depending where you're from, but it's changing, and this will be my point in a second, would be parish, school, and Catholic charities. The first is now charities, all right? So the charitable network of the church is particularly appealing to Catholics, and they are particularly proud of it. And by the way, it's a tool of us keeping our people close because they love what we do, and followed by schools and parishes. So there would be some, Peter, as you'd know, some of our colleagues who would say, we just have to jettison all this old stuff. We, we forget the parish structure, uh, forget the schools. We have to throw that all out, and we got to start with some new, fresh stuff. I wouldn't go there. I'm sure open to that innovation. But, but let me overlay that with something mm -hmm. you mentioned before, and, and so I have questions about it, which is the kind of the shift of population, yeah. right? Which kind of brings us head up against the whole issue of immigration. I mean, what is causing the shift of population, the demography shifts within, for instance, the Archdiocese of New York, the, the growth of Southern? Uh, yeah, our people are moving. So when I go to bishops' meetings, the Archbishop of Atlanta will come up to me and say, thanks for all your people. Because <laughs> they moved down there, all right? So they've got, we got in Florida, we got in the Carolinas, we got in, in Arizona, New Mexico, tons of Catholic cops and firefighters, all right, who have left here in their late 40s, early 50s, and moved, okay? Used to move to Staten Island, maybe moved to Jersey, some still do, but now they're moving away. Okay, so there would, there, there would be one uh, that, that pe secondly, let's face it, um, let's face it, the days of big Catholic families are over. When I, I was born in 1950, and I was the oldest of five, we were considered a small family in my neighborhood, all right? We had five kids. Those days are over, okay? So we're not getting them. Look, there's only, look, there's only three ways a religion can grow, right? Birth people are born into it. Conversion, important for us, not too prominent with you, if I understand correctly. <laughs> Number three, immigration. Immigration. Now, for us, that's what's key. We in the Archdiocese of New York are not going down in numbers. We still have 2.8 million Catholics in the Archdiocese of New York, which, by the way, is not just Manhattan. 
We only got three of the five boroughs, and then we go up north to Albany. Brooklyn and Queens would be its own diocese, the rest of Long Island. But in the archdiocese, we got 2.8 million Catholics, mostly because of immigration, which would lead a cynic like Steve Bannon. I got into trouble because I took him on which would lead a cynic like Steve Bannon to say, of course the American bishops are liberal when it comes to immigration. That's the only way they're keeping their churches open. Now that was so obnoxious and so false that it hardly deserved a response. But we praise God for the immigrants. I praise God for the immigrants as an American and as a Catholic, all right? So we would, we would keep afloat like that. Um, but boy, it's a challenge. Well, what about the leadership of the churches? Are, are they, in other words, let's say you have Manhattan churches that had uh, of their ilk priests who grew up within those communities, those neighborhoods. Yeah. And now, is there an increase in the number of people who are of, of priests who have come from other countries? Yep. And and is that a, is that a problem for you? Uh, that's both a blessing and a problem. All right. So it's a mixed blessing. I thought you were going to bring us out a drink or something. <laughs> we're getting there. Um, uh, your eminence, it's in the cup. Oh, thank you. The... <laughs> I, I want olives in mine, all right? All right. This, this is uh, what my congregation called rabbi water. It's there, straight uh -huh, vodka. I like right? that, okay? Wow, that's 18-year-old, all right? Um, yeah, we see, there's the other biggie, folks. When you got a cultural approach to Catholicism, especially among Irish and Italian, it's going to be great if one of the boys becomes a priest. We don't have that anymore, all right? Um, so we depend a great deal on what we call the international clergy. Because remember, I had mentioned to you before that the church is growing exponentially in Africa, in India, in Asia, in parts of Latin America, that we would get some of their priests here because they're generous in serving, which is great. Now, that might not go over well in North Dakota, it does go over well here because we got their people here anyway, all right? So a priest that would come to us from the Dominican Republic, hey, he's going to feel right at home here, okay? Because there's a lot of Dominicans. Um, I don't know if that's if he were at Salt Lake City, if he'd feel at home, but he would here, okay? Um, so we count on them. We count on them. Boy, but that's a mixed blessing because they'd be the first to admit that they might not be as savvy about American culture, and they, when they're tending to an American congregation, it may be something, boy, it may be something as prosaic as um, heavy accent, but they also aren't quite familiar with um, the American, um, what's going on in America. And of course, for Jews and Catholics, one of the reasons we go to synagogue or church is to find out how to bring our faith to our culture, to our daily lives, right? Boy, if, they, um, if they're not too familiar with the daily lives of, um, of what's going on in Americans, that can be a big pastoral problem, and it is. So I, I, I um, with some uh, uh, sense of uh, timidity, uh, I want to raise a question which, of course, is very much on our minds nationally. Uh -huh. um, the issue of sexual abuse was, mm -hmm. you know, actually the church was probably, you know, dealing with this way before this sudden rash of, of um, you know, people talking about having been abused. What I know about the Archdiocese of New York, because I actually used, not personally, but I needed guidance on this, 
the archdiocese had a system for dealing with complaints that came up and thank you in, uh -huh. in terms of and uh, i can't take credit for that at anti but it was what i was aware of that and it was very helpful now the question i want this to be a pastoral question sure. rather than a, a doctrinal question um one of the issues that has certainly come up within the jewish community and many of the people who are accused now are people of jewish background is what is a prop what is a proper form of atonement how much restitution can one forgive? And, and what happens to those whose names have been brought up who have already died? Mm. Paul, are we, are, we have enough to are we facing those scars, aren't we? I'm, I'm an, I mentioned to you that I'm an historian of American religion, and not surprisingly, especially the Catholic faith in the United States. It's the worst crisis that we've ever faced, uh, the uh, sexual abuse of minors by clergy. It's nothing less than nauseating. Uh, and it will be decades uh, before we ever recover. Uh, we're still in it. We're still bloodied by it. The rabbi was kind enough, and I, boy, do I deeply appreciate it when somebody from kind of who's not Catholic points out to the fact that in many ways now we're looked to as a good example of what to do. We used to be, if, if before the 1990s, we were, we were an example of what not to do. Now we're an example of what to do. And if this current nightmare that we're going through of uh, almost daily exposés about prominent people who have now abused their privilege, their positions of authority uh, to take advantage of people who are beholden to them or who are who are kind of uh, intimidated by them because of their structure, it shows that this is not just a Catholic problem. The Catholic people always bristled when it was suggested that we were the only ones that had the problem. Boy, we know that's not the case anymore. Everybody does, every family, every institution, every religion. Uh, we've learned the hard way and you, you, you keep going and trying to decide what the best way to, to uh, respond to this and what we have learned is that probably the best way is to take our cues from the victim survivors. They will, they will lead us on the best way to respond pastorally, legally, uh, even as, as far as public relations or, or getting this out to the open. They will lead us. They're the ones that have been hurt they're the ones who are grieving. They're the ones who are deeply wounded. And they are, they've learned from that. And most of them will speak to us wisely about it. Now, there are some who want nothing to do with the church, and that's very understandable. There are some who have completely lost all trust. But most of them will lead us as to what to do. And we must listen to them. So most of the things that we've done have been at the prompting of the victim-survivor community. They're the, and their families, all right? They're the ones that have told me, Cardinal Dolan, look, we're never gonna get over this, but uh, you have got to take a lead here and you've gotta do this, this, and this. I think the rabbi hinted that one of the things we've done recently, listening to them, is what we've, we've called the independent, research, uh, the independent Reconciliation and Compensation Program, where all who had been abused that we knew of were invited to come in for healing, for listening, 
and yes, for some type of compensation. And we spent tons of money advertising, inviting people that we didn't know about to come in. And they have, all right? They've told us as well, it's essential that you would release, release the names of abusers, all right? Uh, they, they would be the ones who have said uh, it's essential that you get extraordinarily proactive about background checks, about child safety and protective policies. And we, we have done that. What's your risk, of course, at a time when our priests, 98% of whom have lived, have lived in this area, impeccable lives, um, can be painted with that same brush. And what you do risk sometimes is you risk that someone innocent may be tarred, and as, as the rabbi mentioned, especially when those priests are gone to the Lord or somewhere else, if what they say is, is true. Um, now, um, and that, that too is, is, so there would have been some victim survivors who would have come forward in this, grateful that they did, and they would have reported an abuse by someone that is dead. Now, sometimes that was okay, Rabbi, because, it's not okay, I didn't mean that. Sometimes we didn't risk justice because we already knew it. There were things in their file that we said, ah, I'm afraid this is true because, look, back in 1954, we had this letter. So we thought probably true. There were others where the files were very clean. We listened to the victim survivors, and almost always we believe them. All right, so the bias is believing them. Boy, is, is that, though, sometimes, um, can that wound a priest's reputation and a family who never knew about it before. And all of a sudden they wake up and see that, that story. So that has its own effects. It's part, of, it's part of this whole purgation and purification that we have to go through, I think, as a church. You and I both believe in atonement. You and I both believe in purgation. You and I both believe that's, that gold is purified by fire. And we're going through a fire now, but slowly, 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 we're coming out of it. When I get, when, when now I get requests, the rabbi was humble enough to say he even sought counsel from how to handle things from the church. When I get requests from other organizations, from universities, from Olympic coaches, can you help us here? How do we handle this? I'm thinking, oh, finally, are they looking to us as a light and a help instead of a, as, a, as a, a monster. So maybe the cleansing and purgation is helping. Yeah, I, the, there was an article just, I think, this weekend talking about how museums are thinking about putting asterisks on the nameplate, right, of those apparently known, you know, who are no longer with us, uh, those who have been known to abuse models and so on. And the question is, and, and you may have given the answer when you say you asked the victims, but sometimes victims haven't come forward, and yet should we put, be putting up the art of somebody who's known to be yeah. an abuser? You know, we've started policies. It used to be very common, very common in a Catholic parish. If they put up a new parish hall, they would name it after the former pastor. We've said we can't do that anymore. Not because of the former pastor, but 
it may happen in the future that we've got to change the name. All right? So we're saying, nope, we just don't do that anymore. That's not a good thing to do. Those are some things. So I got a problem too because in, in, in the Catholic approach to things, everybody, I'm supposed to be to my priests what they are to their people. I'm supposed to be the parish priest for my priests. And I see them suffer. And I see them, and now most of them are big boys, and they'll say, well, we know we got to suffer. This is part of our corporate guilt here. And, but that does take its toll, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm very aware of uh, so much that we would mm -hmm. have to talk about, need to talk about, and should talk about, which is my way of putting you on notice. We want you back when we're finished. Save but we still, yeah. we still have time. Especially uh, if we you still have this. Time. This is great. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bottle of it to give you as a gift. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, Did you bring that out to the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it comes from Maine. Right? <laughs> so um, the, this, this po uh, Pope, Pope Francis, by the way, you mentioned uh, John Paul II, who was an extraordinary, yeah. you know, I think I actually spoke about him at your Did residence. you meet him when he came one of the I times? didn't meet him, but you had a, a, a session uh, in which we, there was some scholarship presented and I talked about him. Ah, also. good, yeah. yeah. But um, let's talk about the Middle East. And oh, okay, Vat good. Vatic Vatican, sure. the Pope in the Middle East. Good way to go. Um, the <laughs> Anything to get off that topic, what we were just talking about. <laughs> I, I want to talk about Jewish problems. I, I, <laughs> I figure after that, everything is, is easy from here on in. Um, so um, when, the, when the president mentioned the moving of the embassy to, uh, to Jerusalem, the uh, Pope Francis, I think, expressed what is quoted as a great concern mm -hmm. about that move. Um, uh, and I think there, is, there was some talk about whether it was a public document or a private document that was signed between the Vatican and the Palestinians. Uh, what, give, us a, give us, without going into whether any of this is sure. real or true, what is your view of the Vatican or the church's uh, or the pope's uh, attitude towards the Middle East and possible peace? And does the Vatican have a role in that? Yes, it would. Um, Thanks for asking. That's a good one, and that's something I'm, I'm somewhat well-versed on because of, of, uh, I spent five years with the Vatican Diplomatic Corps. Uh, the Holy See, that's the fancy name for the Vatican. Uh, the Holy See, the, the, uh, the Vatican, um, has always been extraordinarily interested in the, in the Middle East, especially the question about Israel and the Palestinians. There's been a dramatic evolution in the Holy See's posture in this very delicate area. I would say that up until John Paul II, he was elected in 1978, the Holy See would have been very suspicious of the state of Israel, all right? Very suspicious and very dramatic in its solicitude to the Palestinians. Um, why? Well, for one, you would know that a chunk, although a tiny minority, but a, a, a percent of the Palestinians would be Christians and they would look to the Vatican, to the Holy See, uh, for protection and for understanding, for advocacy. Number two, even though the, the uh, number of Christians in the Middle East would be of a, of a tiny minority, they would represent the ancient, ancient churches. All right, so when you speak about the Maronite Catholics in Lebanon, when you speak about the Melkite Catholics, when you 
when you, when you speak about all those ancient Catholic rites, they would have been there, well, certainly not as long as you all, all right, but they would have, they would have been there for um, centuries and centuries and centuries. And obviously for us, uh, we have a, 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 a tender spot in our heart for what we call the Holy Land, you do as well, uh, because that's what we think of Jesus, we think of his blessed mother, we think of the apostles, and we think about the earliest Christian communities. And as the popes would always say, we never want Israel, and now the Israelites say this too, the, the state of Israel, we never want Israel just to become a museum of what the Christian community used to be historically. We want it to continue to be a vi vibrant force. So those were two reasons why the Holy See typically was kind of suspicious of Israel and somewhat leery of its prerogatives and more in the defense of the Palestinians. Without losing a solicitude for the Palestinians, beginning with John Paul II, he, um, he changed that. He changed that. One of the reasons would have been theological. He, of course, was a great theologian. And he was convinced of the deep, deep intimate bonds between uh, Jews and Catholics. Number two would have been his own experience in Poland when he saw, which has been well documented, he himself uh, grew up with many Jewish friends and he saw the horror of atrocity against the Jews in his beloved Poland. Uh, and that gave him, uh, that gave him, a, uh, his heart broke for them and that never left him. And thirdly, I think he was just downright savvy about the, legitim the legitimacy of Israel and the fact that its uh, robust democracy and its own internal uh, uh, allegiance to principles of religious liberty could be a very good stabilizing force in an historically volcanic region. This, of course, led to a complete shift where today I think one could say that, um, that the state of Israel would have a very strong ally in the Holy See, in the, uh, in the leadership of the Catholic Church. And it's not changing with Pope Francis. There are two ways we try to show that, everybody. First of all, we try to show that here at home in our friendship with the Jewish community. And I'm not, you're not startled to hear that the, the friendship, the relationship of amity between the Jewish community and the Catholic community in the United States, and dare I say in this city, is a model for the world. They will often look to us as a good model of Jews and Catholics who get along and who enjoy each other and who work together. Uh, so that, that would be one kind of, we call that interreligious dialogue. And then secondly, that would be shown in, a, in our now defense of the state of Israel. Pope St. John Paul II took a dare in 1992 of extending diplomatic relations to the state of Israel. Uh, that was a dare that most of his advisors said, don't do it, Holy Father. And he had a stubborn streak in him and said, thanks for your advice, but forget it, I'm doing it. And I'm glad he did, okay? So that wouldn't mean that the Holy See would not periodically criticize some policies, but I understand you do too, of, uh, of, this, of the state of Israel. We, we do that here, we do that, in, we do that in the countries from which we've come. 
Uh, but, but I would say, Rabbi, and I, I know you well enough to, to know you would agree with me on this and probably just threw me a softball because I can, I can uh, brag about this. You've got a great friend, uh, the, the, the Israel. The, what, this is strange, isn't it? You know one of the things that's bringing us even more closely together is the persecution of Christians throughout the world. We Christians have no better friend in the defense of persecuted Christians. And you know the statistic, there's a Christian killed every hour somewhere in the world simply because of his or her faith. We have no better friend than the Jewish community. Uh, and they, in fact, most of the time, your leaders are in my face saying, you guys have to do something. Take it from us. This ain't going to go away unless you start getting defensive, unless you start advocating for them. And uh, th this, is bringing us, this is bringing us more closely together. Uh, and the Holy See appreciates that very, very much. So one of the great leaders in the world today in raising the alarm about the, uh, the scary rise of international anti-Semitism would be the Vatican, would be the Holy See. And a defender, a defender um, in the, uh, of, uh, of the state of Israel today, not without criticism, uh, friendship means loyalty and sometimes uh, bringing bad news, would be the Holy See. We, it's because, see here's the fact, in what Middle East country would a Christian be most secure today? Israel. If I asked a, a Coptic Catholic, would you rather live in Egypt or in Israel? Guess what they're going to say, all right? If they're living in Israel, they don't have to worry about their church being blown up on a Sunday, as happens way too often in, uh, in, throughout the rest of the world. So I think, Rabbi, you've got, a you've got a great friend in contemporary pontiffs. I will tell you this. One of the things I hear uh, from the Jewish community here in the United States, especially my work with the Jewish Catholic National Dialogue, is that they worry because of the growth that we mentioned earlier of the church in the third world, they worry about an eventual pope who would come from a country where he has never met a Jew. And there would be many such countries. Uh, pope Francis, of course, came from Buenos Aires that has a vibrant Jewish community and he was renowned for his friendship. And a good friend as a rabbi. Yep. And, and, but sooner or later, there will come uh, a pope who is unfamiliar with any, has never met Jews, and who may have some stereotypes that are less than helpful. So they worry about that. And well, I don't blame I'm, them. I'm, and I'm, as I think, I mean, as you talked about the priesthood, that's now trying to find its way, speaking to a community that has a different cultural background, mm -hmm. how many of those priests had in fact met Jews how along true? the way? How true. So let me, um, uh, just because I am so well aware of time, and we're talking about the Pope, uh, I was really actually so surprised to read about his statement about fake news and, <laughs> and, and technology. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's not something that I would have thought the, the papacy would have um, brought up as a subject. Not, by the way, I'm not sure I agree with his, uh, uh, his exegesis on the 
Garden of Eden story, but let's put that aside because <laughs> he's not here to argue. Well, you guys sort of have a copyright on that. So. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> we better well, listen on to you. one interpretation of <laughs> yeah. it. Um, tell me why that came up, and what do you, what is that? What does that say about his understanding of really the the, the challenge? I don't want to say the evil, but the challenge of social media, and and in fact. Uh, the virile nature of disinformation and fake news being uh, yeah. spread. Here's the thing, everybody. This is very, uh, I don't think it dawns on Catholics, so I can't expect it to have dawned on people who are not of the household of the faith. But we are not used to a pope who takes, um, who, what shall I say, a, a, a pope who responds to daily contemporary things like this one does. You see, usually a pope, even a very modern pope like, like John Paul II, uh, you, usually a pope will take as the data for his teaching what? The Bible, uh, the uh, tradition of the church, the magisterium, you know what that fancy word just means, the teaching office of the church, the way the church has interpreted and passed on the faith, uh, the ecumenical consuls, and the lives of the saints and holy people. This would be the data, all right? For Pope Francis, the data is the daily news. Now, I'm not saying he ignores the other. He doesn't. He's a genius on that. But he, he now part of that, everybody, is because he is a... Jesuit, all right? And Jesuits, of course, were founded by St. Ignatius Loyola, and part of his charism is what he called discernment of spirits. So in a Jesuit spirituality, which is remarkably insightful, another way God reveals himself to us is, yeah, the things I just mentioned, the Bible, the lives of the saints, the teaching office of the church, the, the uh, teachings of the, the doctrines of the consuls uh, of the church. But he also, the Lord also reveals himself to us in the stirrings of the human heart, where, where you would discern what the Lord is teaching you inside. Inside. That's particularly strong. That's called an Ignatian spirituality. I don't claim to be an expert. There's a bunch of them who, would I, who I would count on. But you can see that in Pope Francis. Um, now, you've got to be careful about that. And St. Ignatius was very skillful in showing us a way to what he called discern those spirits. What, what are the interior stirrings of your heart? Which of those come from God and which of those come from the opposite of God. That's a big spiritual journey for all of us. But so he would comment and even use the phrases fake news. He would speak about technology. Uh, he, would, he would not be afraid to kind of uh, ask questions about where might God be leading us in all these contemporary challenges that we have. I find, and I, if the polls are correct, I think people find this amazingly refreshing, but can also have a downside, can't it? Because when you comment on, 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 on these things, you risk uh, saying things that later on you have to clarify, okay? Because where, whereas we believe that the Pope is free from error when he is speaking 
about matters of defined faith, in other words, repeating things. He's not. He's not infallible. He's not free from error when he's simply commenting as a person or as a pastor, okay? And he wouldn't claim to be. It's like we, one of the leading churchmen in, uh, in the United States was James Cardinal Gibbons, who was the Archbishop of Baltimore. And when uh, some journalist asked him once, he said, hey, do you think the Pope's infallible? He said, well, I don't know. He calls me Gibbons. So, <laughs> so in other words, yeah, he can make mistakes like any other human being. But so that, that would sometimes, his critics would say, that gets him in trouble. I don't think he minds that. He said early on, he said, you know what? Sometimes the church needs to make a mess because there can be good things that come from it. And so he doesn't seem to be embarrassed by that, does no, he? No, I'm, I'm fascinated. I think we are all fascinated. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some questions, um, mm -hmm. not too much time, but uh, actually the first question I'm going to ask, I'm going to answer for you. Okay. Um, the question is from a nice little Jewess from St. Louis. Ooh. What do you miss most about St. Louis now that you've moved to New York? And so I'm going to tell you what you miss. Uh, as you know, I, I modeled for a piece of a statue out there that's standing naked pretty much in the middle of the fountain in mm -hmm. front of the old courthouse. And I'm sure that's what you miss. Seeing <laughs> me. <laughs> All right. I've never been asked to model for anything, so. Uh. This is about those, my days as a runner. Um, so tonight is the President's State of the Union address. What three topics, uh, cohorts, do you wish the President would address? Well, I'm hoping this goes till 10 in the evening, so I don't have to, well, I shouldn't say that, but. <laughs> uh, Obviously, I, you've talked for lots of us. <laughs> I would love to hear him say something sane, so, uh, I, I, didn't, I shouldn't say, I, I didn't mean, I'd love to hear, because I, I would say this of any political leader, I'd love to hear him say something sane, civil, promising, and constructive about immigration, all right? Uh, I, I hope he would say that. <clears throat> Number two, I, I would hope he would say something. We're looking for something to bring us together. I'm no expert on this, but something everybody knows is that we have to do something about our infrastructure, right? Anybody who drives down a street or crosses a bridge in this city or goes to the airport knows, or takes the train, knows that we're in trouble infrastructure. This seems to me to be a boom issue that everybody would agree on, so I'm hoping he seizes that. And you know what? Number three, although I'm dreaming here, I'd love to hear him say, we have to bring the country together, you and Congress and me. And if I have done anything to impede that, I apologize. <laughs> All right? You know. <laughs> <laughs> the good news is we both still believe in miracles, right? <laughs> um, so today's children, a question, today's children have no knowledge of the political divide of both parties. How do you find the balance in spirituality and faith that is needed to enlighten today's youth? Yeah, you know what? History, history, history. And I think we're all guilty of this. We, it, it, you can see by the tone of what we just said, we, we kind of sometimes fall into the trap to think that our, our given era, in other words, right now, January 30th, 2018, is the most divisive, the most heated, the most bickering, the most, the deepest partisan divide that we've ever had. 
And while there are things today that might be particularly acute, we've never been free of that. I love reading the biographies of the presidents. I'm just finishing Ron Chernow's excellent one on Grant. My God, when you see what, what was said about him, when you see the attacks on Abraham Lincoln, uh, when you see what was said about Ulysses Grant, okay, we've never been free of that bickering and that fierce antagonism in the partisan realm. No earthly kingdom has. We've done it remarkably and in a singular uh, uh, good fashion in that our republic has survived. Uh, and I think mostly because of the basic common decency and good sense of the American people. So I have a, Rabbi, I have an optimism and a confidence um, in, in, in what we're going to do. Now for me, ultimately, I believe, well, it's not in the hands, whatever side you're on. It's not in the hands, ultimately, of a Donald Trump or if you're on the other side of a, of a, Char, of a Chuck Schumer. It's in the hands of God. He is the sovereign of nations. And ultimately, his plan, as the people of Israel show us, his plan will triumph. Bad thing about the Lord is he takes his time. But uh, ultimately, 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 we like things in a microwave. He prefers a crock pot, okay? <laughs> the food in a crock pot's always better, okay? But so ultimately, he will prevail. That's the advantage that uh, people of faith have. And by the way, that's the advantage that these presidents that I admire, whether it be a Lincoln or a Grant or a George Washington, they kind of sense that. And if they see themselves as agents, uh, I mean in the best sense, not as a spokesman for God, but if they see themselves as a channel and a servant of the Lord and not as the Lord, then we'll get through this, okay? But <laughs> so, <clears throat> so and, and, and I have one last question and mm -hmm. then an offer I'm going to make mm -hmm. of you. Uh, while the Lord is taking his or her time, uh, could you speak on any role you believe that Catholic and Jewish leadership uh, has to play in the current immigration debate in America, if any? Yes, 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 yes. We, we stick to the principles. And we, we insist as Catholic and Jewish leaders that there's a lot, there's a big arena of, of where there's valid discussion about the how of our immigration policy. But there are certain essentials that are ingrained in the human heart by our Creator and that have flourished in this great republic, namely that every single human person, no matter where he or she was born, does not come from a whole, but comes from God and deserves dignity and respect. That a person deserves di dignity and respect not because he or she has a passport or a green card, but simply because he, and she, he or she is a human being created in God's image and likeness. So that's one thing we insist upon. And number two, that the, the, biblical, the biblical mandate to welcome the stranger has made America great. And you want to talk about making America great again? Well, then, then you are pro-immigration. 
because that has made America great, okay? America's greatness, the bias then is always on favor of welcome and hospitality. That doesn't mean that a country does not have the right to legitimate security in protecting its border. You bet we do, and there can be improvement there. But that our bias, our posture is always in favor of welcome and embracing the immigrant. I think that's, those are biblical truths that you and I very much so very um, strong on. And, <clears throat> and now my, my offer, uh, my son said mm -hmm. he's going to live stream from California, so I'm gonna test them on this uh, uh -huh. to see whether he listened. Uh, I'm going to ask you uh, to give a two-minute sermon to this assembled congregation. Uh-huh. What's your two-minute sermon? My two-minute sermon would be this. This, um, that today there will be a second collection. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and that it's going to St. Patrick, all right? <laughs> No. You'll get 30%. You, you give me, you give me a, a couple seconds. What we are doing this evening is reflective of what makes Catholics and Jews and the United States great. We meet as friends. The bias is in, in favor of respect and listening. The welcome is sincere and warm. And one, one just feels at home because we're speaking of, of things that resonate in the heart uh, that come from a long experience that both of us have. This is reflective of what every kitchen table, what every barbershop, every pub, uh, every uh, 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 Congress, every White House should reflect. A coming together in trust and respect in speaking about things that we all consider to be of substance. So, amen. <laughs> so, um, that's, what I, makes, I, that's what makes the 92nd Street Y so good. By the way, can I do a little commercial? Absolutely. We, I was so moved by the mission and the, the activities of the 92nd Street Y that we're the greatest form of uh, of, uh, of uh, affection is, is flattery, or the greatest form of flattery is Im imitation, right? We've sort of started a similar one down on Bleecker Street in the Fulton J. Sheen Center for Thought and Culture. I don't know if you've, I just was mentioning it to Peter ahead of time because I want to get him involved and he was very interested in it. We have these kind of things, we, we do dance, we do lecture, we do readings, we do drama, we do art exhibits. Because see, for both of us, of course, is, uh, is the, glory, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. And so all of that has, has something to say about our religious uh, hearts. And I wanna, one of these days I'd love to exchange uh, and to have your people we, come we, down there. We would That'd love be okay? it. We would, would you absolutely. bring a covered dish? I, I, will, <laughs> I bring... I would bring my uh, famous, uh, famous fish stew, which my wife says, you know, is so famous that she's never eaten it. So, um, listen, I want to thank Jamil and, and his yes. uh, son and his family for I'd having made this Jamil, possible. I love meeting Jamil, can I? I love we'll, meet... we'll spend some time perhaps I right after. I love meeting Jewish philanthropists. Yes. <laughs> listen, you have, you have some great ones right across the street in Rockefeller Center oh, looking I down know, on the I church. Know. 
but I, you know, I want to thank all of you for being here. But um, my friend, Your Eminence, uh, Tim, this is a. You have a huge heart, a great spirit, an extraordinary, a a, a, <laughs> an extraordinary brain, and we thank would you. welcome you back here anytime, you anyhow. It, right? And thank You're you so much for thank being you. here. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.